Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for delivering me both safely to and from my travels. And that I could have the privilege and the blessing to stand here again, Father, and to speak from your word on behalf of all that you have done for us and all that you are doing for us, Father, that this word would stand still today as a testimony as it has for eternity and will for eternity. Thank you, Father, that uh, you count men and women like myself weak and incapable in our own power as uh, messengers qualified to speak on your behalf by your spirit. And I also thank you, Father, for the many here, the men and women who gather in your name and make a point every week, Father, to serve you and to prepare for better things to come. We thank you, Father, that you make this opportunity available to us. And yet, Father, we also confess that we don't always make the most of it, that uh, we aren't given over to it at times. We may not be here. And even when we are sometimes, Father, we're not here, not in all respects. And I know the world impinges upon our hearts, Father, with many cares and worries and pleasures. And those things will never cease, Father, until the day we enter into your kingdom, and then we will finally know the peace that comes from being like you in all respects. But, Father, in the meantime, I pray, Lord, you take those distractions away from our hearts and minds, that the Spirit in each of us, by faith, would speak clearly. But even more importantly, Father, we would hear. Our ears would be open. Our hearts would be made ready. As we start another book in your scriptures, Father, we, we long to know what it holds for us. And we know that that will take time and it will take diligence and attention. And let today, Father, be the first step along a path of that kind of attentiveness and give us strength to finish it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is captain of his people. He leads us in a variety of ways and he does it. In a myriad of circumstances, sometimes he'll lead us in dramatic ways, as he did the people of Israel in the desert when he brought the pillar of fire and and cloud before them. And then there's other times he'll lead us just in simple directions, like when he spoke to Abraham and he said, go to a place I will show you. And then in the way he leads us today by his word and by his spirit, it's done in a quiet and ever-present manner in our heart. But then there's a day to come, as you know, when the Lord will return and he'll lead us in person here on earth living in his kingdom. But across all of the ways in which the Lord leads us, there is one common denominator to the pattern we find in Scripture. And that is that the Lord elevates men and women to participate with him in the leading process, in the leading of others. The patriarchs, for example, were called to lead their families and the tribes of Israel. Then God called Moses, later Joshua, to lead the nation as they moved through the desert and into the promised land. Today he calls elders to lead the church. And the church itself will one day be called to lead the nations during the time of the kingdom. All of these examples and more like them are showing that the Lord operates through men and women to extend his authority into the world. And we share in that today. This morning, we're going to start a new study in the book of Judges. And this is a study of God leading his people, the nation of Israel, in an important period of their history of about 300 years And doing so through a collection, through an assortment of, well, to be honest, some strange people, some very interesting characters. This book, as I said, covers about 300 years in Israel's history. It moves us from the period of Moses and Joshua, those times when Israel was moving out of Egypt into the promised land. And it moves us toward an eventual arrival of the kings, the monarchy of Israel. And in that way, the book of Judges serves as a bit of a transition period in Israel's history. 
on the one hand, it's an epilogue to the times of Israel's wandering in the desert and their conquest of Canaan. But on the other hand, it's prologue to the period of the Jewish monarchy. Now, the book itself is called Judges, but to be honest, that title is a bit of a misnomer since it's really not a book about people who adjudicate law. It's more about military leaders, captains, not judges. And the book opens with Joshua dying and he was the final military leader that the Lord appointed over Israel when they left Egypt, the man who succeeded Moses in that role. He brought Israel into the promised land. He led them for 35 years. The book of Joshua is about 35 years of Jewish history. And he did so through a series of military campaigns, which effectively established Israel in the land, in the promised land. Now, in that time, in those 35 years, they were able to come into a land that had an established population and fortified cities and all the rest. And they were able to gain a strong foothold in the region. But at the time of Joshua's death, which is where this book picks up, Israel had not yet conquered the land of Canaan entirely, which was God's expectation. So when Joshua dies, you might have expected at this point that the Lord would have appointed a successor, a third military leader, if you will, one that comes like in the same fashion as Moses and Joshua, to complete the process of conquering Canaan. But instead, the Lord expected each tribe in the tribes of Israel to move into their appointed territory in the region and in so doing to complete the work of taking the land. So it was to be that the tribes would each individually conquer what was remaining in their land by assuming the parts of the land that were given to them. But that does not mean that the Lord intended for his people to operate without any leadership whatsoever in the process. On the contrary, he expected first the patriarchal leaders of each tribe to rule over their respective tribes, over their respective groups. And then, of course, the people of Israel were to follow the law that had already been given to them through Moses, that was going to be another source of judgment or of leadership over the people. The priests would operate in the temple. The priests would instruct the people. The elders of each tribe would adjudicate over the people of that tribe. The fathers would be responsible over their households. There was plenty of leadership at all levels of society already available to them. And then on top of all of that, on occasion, there were going to be circumstances in which tribes would encounter strong opposition in the land, strong enemies, people that needed to be defeated according to God's purpose. And under those circumstances, the Lord was prepared to appoint special leadership for a time and for a purpose to accomplish his means. And in these situations, he would raise up regional captains, for lack of a better term. These leaders would possess the anointing and the charisma to unite a part of a tribe or all of a tribe or maybe several tribes of the 12 and to work in a campaign to defeat some specific enemy. That office of leadership, our Bible calls a judge. But that idea of a judge is itself not entirely new. In Deuteronomy, Moses commanded the people to appoint judges in every town to settle civil disputes. So they already have judges in that respect. But the role that we're talking about in this book, the role that comes after Joshua, is an expanded form of the same. Judges in the time following Joshua were men, and in one case women, who were appointed to ensure that Israel accomplished its duty of occupying the land. That's the key purpose of a judge in the book of Judges, to ensure that Israel follows the law, moves forward in the plan, and continues to occupy and eventually take over all of Canaan. 
Sometimes they're going to help accomplish that through military authority. They're going to be a military leader of a campaign like Gideon. Other times they're going to be called to address rising apostasy in the nation. But in all cases, they are God's appointed agents during a period of history in which there was no single person in Israel responsible for the entire nation. That's what makes this an interesting and unique period of history in their nation. So the book of Judges traces what happens in Israel when God's people are given a law and they're given the land and they're given a responsibility to follow and obey him, but they do not have a single point of national leadership. So the question becomes, as we study this book, how did that work out? Well, you probably already know the answer to that, right? Do God's people possess the ability to, in and of themselves, follow the Lord with their whole heart? And to take what he promised and to accomplish it in the strength that they possess. Is that possible in God's people? Or will it turn out a different way? Well, I hate to give the end of the story away, but it it doesn't go quite according to plan. This is most likely a book written by the prophet Samuel, who, when he wrote it, was writing as Saul was king in Israel. And he didn't write this book to provide some complete history of Israel's time during the three centuries that the book covers. That wasn't his purpose. Instead, he wrote a very selective record of what happened in those 300 years. He focused on certain events, certain people, and he did so for a very specific purpose. He wanted to explain why kings came later. The book of Judges is is Saul's explanation of why you find kings arriving and later why David must ascend over Saul. This is a book of both why you have kings and why David needed to be the king instead of Saul. So when Samuel wrote this book, Saul was king, but he knew David had been anointed to be king. So he wrote to explain to Israel the circumstances of that situation prophetically. In fact, the Jews themselves recognized this purpose because they placed the book of Judges among the prophets not among the historical books, because they see it in that way. Now, since Samuel wrote Judges to explain history, as it turned out, then it falls upon us, I think, this morning to do a little historical homework of our own in preparation for the study of Judges. Because I think you have to understand what comes immediately before and immediately after the 300 years that Judges represents. So we're going to do that this morning as a bit of introduction to the rest of the book of Judges. And uh, just to throw another kink in the, in the process for you, we're going to begin the book of Judges with the final verse of the book. So turn with me to Judges 21, verse 25. Now, I promise we're not going to read the book backwards, so I will not be going backward more than this, but we just want to start with how the book ends. So, as I said, we, we need to do a little history here on what happens before and what happens after, and I'm going to do those in reverse order. We're going to look at what happens after first. Verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You probably heard this ominous ending to the book before, although you may not have realized where it came from. But that phrase, that verse is something you may have heard repeated. Samuel says, in those days, there was no king. Now, what he's doing, of course, is reminding his readers that Israel didn't always have a king. In fact, the nation existed For over 350 years without any king at all during that entire time. In place of a king, they were led by various men, as I already mentioned, including tribal elders, prophets and captains of the army. And above all, they were ruled by God himself, leading and instructing his people in the desert 
and then later in Canaan. So Samuel begins with telling the, the reader that there was a time before kings, but then he goes on to tell us not all was well with the people during this time. Increasingly, in the years from Moses until the death of Joshua, the people did what was right in their own eyes. That phrase is intentionally ironic. The Hebrew word translated right, yashar, it literally means to act in an upright manner. That is to act in a righteous manner. So Samuel says this. He says that each Israelite did what was upright, what was righteous, but in their own eyes. Now you see the irony, right? The qualification he adds there at the end, in their own eyes, it serves to contradict the idea that they were doing right in the first place. And so it's ironic. Because, friends, the phrase, in your own eyes, it's a euphemism that means acting according to your own interests or your own standards. It means looking out for number one. It means doing what feels good. For example, if I were a Jew living back in the day of Samuel's writing, and and if I was to do what was right in my own eyes concerning, uh, let's say, the Sabbath, then what that means is when I preferred to observe a Sabbath, I observed a Sabbath. But when I preferred not to observe a Sabbath, I didn't. I did what was right in my own eyes. Some days it felt right, some days it didn't. Sometimes it suited my needs and purposes. Sometimes it got in the way of what I wanted. And so I did what was right in my own eyes. On the other hand, someone else had a different opinion. They did what was right in their eyes. But we were all doing right, or so we thought. Now, you can immediately see the problem here, can't you? In matters of righteousness, there can only be one right way, by definition, God's way. As Jesus says to the young rich ruler in Luke chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Right? I've said this in here before. Goodness or rightness or righteousness is not a scale in Scripture that doesn't have a continuum from on the one end evil and sinful and then at the other end perfectly good and then we're all somewhere in between. That's not the way the Bible describes it whatsoever. The Bible says no one is good but God alone. So in other words, goodness is not a, a spectrum. Goodness is a point. And if you're on that point, then you're God. And if you're not on that point, then you're everyone else. Guess where you are. If that's the only thing you learn today, then I've done my job. By our sinful nature, we do as we choose, and in so doing, we sin. Only God has good nature, so by his nature, he only does what is good, so he is never sinning. That's why we needed God's righteousness assigned to us by faith in order to be deemed worthy to enter into his kingdom, into the paradise that comes for those who are in Christ. So, if everyone in Israel is doing what is right, but only according to their own standards, then no one is doing anything truly right. What kind of culture, what kind of environment do you think it must have been like then in Israel when everybody's doing what they want and no one's doing what's right? In general, they must have lived without concern for righteousness. They must have lived only for themselves. They did not obey, and therefore they didn't achieve what God asked them to achieve in the land. Now remember, this commentary, this verse, where does it fall in the book of Judges? It's the last thing you hear. So, as I said, I hate to give away the end of the story, but the period of Judges did not arrive at the outcome that God would have otherwise intended. They had the law, but it didn't change their hearts. They had priests, but they weren't listening or taking instruction from them. They had elders, they had patriarchs, and, as you know in the book, they had judges or captains. But those things collectively did not produce in Israel righteousness. The problem of their sin and disobedience persisted Throughout the period of Judges, as Samuel's comment observes, 
That was the state of Israel leading up to the monarchy. So God gave Israel leaders and all the other things we mentioned, and none of it could overcome the sinfulness of their hearts. Interestingly, when you look at the books written about the kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and so on, these books demonstrate yet again that even in the arrival of the monarchy, these problems persisted. That is not to say that monarchy won't eventually arrive at the solution. The problem is not monarchy. The problem is who your monarch is. So all of these things are leading us down a trail of understanding that the sinfulness of men must be contained or constrained or dealt with through supernatural means by God alone. Men don't have the solution. That's, that's sort of the undercurrent of all of this. But the details matter, and that's why we're going to study the book. So Samuel wrote this account to demonstrate the ineffectiveness of human leaders, local temporary leaders that could not bring righteousness into Israel, because in the end, every person just did what they judged to be right in their own eyes. What they needed was a strong enough leader who could take the entire nation and direct them into righteousness. Ultimately, David pictures that leader, though he is not that leader. He pictures that leader, Christ himself. But before we can properly understand the need for Messiah's rule, it's important for us to understand why all the other options fail. It's a process of elimination. When you see the needs of men unmet by every other dispensation God provides, then we can finally understand the need for a kingdom with the King Christ. Having seen the end of the story, and of course that's a depressing end, and hopefully won't set your mind against the book, let's go back to the moment right before the period of Judges begins, and let's understand what Israel had coming in and where they started. And we need to begin with Joshua's speech to the people shortly before his death, which occurs in the final chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. So we're going to study all 24 today. It doesn't take long. It's really one long speech that we can summarize in several chunks. But it sets the stage for where we're going in Judges. Look at chapter 24 of Joshua. If you're not sure where this is, it's the book right before Judges. Verses 1 through 13 begin. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And then I gave them into your hand. 
Then I sent the hornet before you and I drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by the sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. So this whole speech takes place just before Joshua died. He calls all the leaders of Israel. You notice the list here included elders, heads, which means leaders of tribes, and also judges, you notice, and officers of the military. He brings all of these to Shechem, which was the traditional home of the patriarchs, and collected all of these men together, knowing he was about to die. And in preparation for that moment, he recounts briefly the history of the people of Israel from the time that they were formed in promises given to Abraham all the way through to the present moment. And as he does this, he explains that Israel's fathers have lived from ancient times, from beyond Jordan in the Ur, that they started as pagan worshipers, as Abraham's father did and as his family did. He brought them into the land. He made promises. He multiplied them. Then when the time was right, he took them down to Egypt where they could incubate, if you will, becoming a people there. And then later, plagues Egypt, brings them out, defeats the Egyptians in the sea. And he says, you have seen these things happen. Remember, Joshua was there when they crossed the Red Sea. He was young, but he was there. And there are others in his midst who were at that same point in life. And so they are also still alive. Certainly, there are others now who have been born since. But what he's speaking to, if you remember, he's speaking to the leadership. Who are the leaders going to be in Israel? The old guys. So he's speaking to people, for the most part, who remember personally Egypt and remember personally the Red Sea crossing and, of course, the wilderness wandering. And then now what's happened is they've come into the land. They know God from these things. And then in verse eight, he moves to telling the story of the conquest. He begins first with the Amorites, which was on the far side of the Jordan before they crossed the Jordan. They faced a stronger enemy there. And yet, even when that enemy went and found a prophet to curse Israel, it all still worked out. God still blessed them. Then they crossed the Jordan. First thing they face is a fortified city up on a hillside, Jericho. They come across this wide plain across the river up to Jericho, a city that would have otherwise been impossible to defeat. And they beat it by walking around blowing horns. And one by one, they push out all of the Canaanite peoples from the land as far as they had gone to that point. Now, how did they do all of that? Well, as Joshua points out at the very end of what I read, they do it all without might, without the strength of an army. They have an army, yes, but that's not why they won. The Lord uses what I would call ridiculous methods of winning these battles. You know, Jericho with the horns and the walking around for seven times and all of that. That's that's silly stuff. We make cartoons out of it. But it worked. And then he has the hornet method. He drives the enemies away with wasps. And he makes it very clear, as you notice there at the end, he says, you didn't win these battles with bow or sword. You didn't go out and fight your own way into the land. I brought you in. I've been doing it all. Now, because the Lord allowed the Canaanites to be in the land, even at all in the first place, the land has been prepared beforehand for them to occupy it without them having to raise a finger. They already have cities built for them. They already have all of the land prepared for for farming. They have fields planted, vineyards ready, olive groves producing, wells probably have been dug, wild animals have been driven out. The Lord has done all these things, so they just have to walk right in and set up shop living in a land prepared for them. That's the wisdom and the power and the providence of God for his people. What an amazing testimony. If you stopped at this point in Joshua's testimony, verse 13, you just have to sit down at this point and say, What can we not do 
when the God who loves us and has promised things to us is working on our behalf? And the answer is nothing. I mean, with, all, with God, all things are possible, right? That's the, the underlying testimony of Scripture concerning God's power for his people. But now notice where Joshua goes. Verse 14, he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, well, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, well, we will serve the Lord. How many of you have got verse 15 on a placard somewhere in your house? Okay, but how many of you have the whole verse? It's interesting, isn't it, that we've taken that verse and we've cut it down. It's, it's, it's strange in a way. I don't know why we do that necessarily. Maybe it's just because it's more pithy when you take out the heart of it. But notice the whole verse, the entire context, and not just 15, but also 14. The entire context makes clear Joshua has his doubts about these people. This is not some kind of rallying cry for the people of Israel. It's really an indictment. He asks sarcastically, that is, after all the Lord has done for the people, all that I just told you about, all that you have seen with your very own eyes, if you still find it disagreeable to serve this God, well, then you've got to choose someone like the famous prophet Dylan said. You've got to serve somebody. We've all got to serve somebody. So who's it going to be? Maybe he says you just go back and serve the gods that your fathers were serving before they found the true living God over the river. That is the, the river Euphrates he's talking about. Or perhaps you prefer the new gods you're finding among the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. He says, you know, pick somebody. But he says, as far as my house, we're going to serve the Lord who is clearly the living God and has done all that he has promised. Now, that statement is part of verse 15, that statement of we will serve the Lord. We know it so well. But consider what Joshua is really saying. He's saying that these people were making choices that were right in their own eyes, to use the phrase from Judges. And the conclusion that was coming in the, in, among the people was, apparently, they were choosing different gods, despite their history. In other words, you don't say this, as Joshua said it, you don't say this to a group of people who are all 100% serving the living God, do you? You wouldn't even raise the question. The reason he's saying this is because it would seem there are people in Israel right then and there already willing to serve other gods. They're at least toying with it if they haven't already jumped into it with both feet. They're looking at the Amorite gods. They're wondering about the gods of their fathers. Therefore, Joshua's statement is really a crack in the wall of Israel's faithfulness. It's showing us that even at this early point, even after they've been led by Moses and now Joshua and all that's happened, which he just recounted, despite all of that, here we are in the land, 35 years in the land with all of that success. And what are they doing? They're, they're wondering, at least some of them are wondering who the God is they should worship. We've seen this before, right? I mean, in terms of Scripture, study of Scripture. Remember Moses, you know, they were barely a, a few weeks out of Egypt after all of what you saw going on there. And they're building calves, right? They're, they're, they're doing things that you can't imagine doing after such a short period of time. So this is hardly unprecedented. It seems as though their wandering hearts have shown up again here. And still, look what they answer to Joshua in verse 16. They say what is essentially the same thing they said to Moses in the desert. 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Methinks they do protest too much. Verse 17, for the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage 
and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove, us, drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. That's a very unequivocal statement, isn't it? Very convincing. The words sound right, but we know from the history of Israel, words are cheap. And again, in this case, they prove to be. Following their profession of obedience, look what Joshua says to finish this chapter, verses 19 through 28. He says something very similar to what Moses said under similar circumstances. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. Well, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made it for a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. Thus, it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. That last phrase there is it's the moment when he says, now go to the parts of the land that I told you you have to your respective area of Canaan and settle it. That's what he's saying. But, of course, the main point of this, Joshua's doubt in their profession is clearly evident, isn't it? He even starts at the beginning of verse 19. He says, you're not going to be able to serve this God, the one that you say you're going to be able to serve, because he won't forgive your sin of idolatry. Why does he say God won't forgive them? I mean, is God incapable of forgiving his people? No, of course not. What he's saying, though, is that once they forsake the Lord to worship foreign gods, which is something Joshua knows is coming, because evidently it's already started. He says, once you do that, they will have repeated what their fathers did at the mountain. It's the same sin again. And when you break this covenant, the covenant of law that they're under, and you sin in that regard, there is no forgiveness in that covenant for idolatry. There's no sacrifice for that sin. There's no get out of jail free card for that sin. What is the consequence of idolatry under the law? Death. That's it. That's all it was provided for. So he's saying there won't be a forgiveness for this sin. And where are they already? What are they already doing? They're already doing the thing for which there is no forgiveness, which is why he can say to them right now, you're not going to be able to do this. It's too late. Not as an individual. We're not saying on the individual level, someone by faith isn't forgiven. No, that's the that's a totally different issue. He's talking about as a nation of people under a national covenant. Here's the consequence of breaking the covenant. It's God putting them out of the land. Not right away, but it's coming. Nevertheless, the people persist. They claim they will obey. And so Joshua says, fine, we're going to set up a stone here and we're going to renew this covenant. The covenant he establishes here is not a new covenant. It's the old covenant. It's the law done again, much like Moses did in Deuteronomy. Moses went through that same process a second time in Deuteronomy. Joshua does it here a third time. It's not like it ever went away. It's for their understanding. 
for this generation to just get the point. You're supposed to do these things. And he set up a stone. Look at the phrasing, though, he uses and the Bible uses about this whole process. He says, you in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourself. Then later, this stone will be a witness against you. What it means is this will be something that later convicts you to show you were unfaithful. It's presuming where things are going. And so he sets up this covenant and puts this marker. By the way, this marker, he says he puts it under this oak. This is the same oak where Abraham set up his altar when he was in the land. It's the same oak in Shechem where Jacob buries the idols that his wife took from Laban. In fact, there is a large standing stone that has been excavated at a place in Shechem which matches this description. could have been perhaps the same stone. So we're talking about something that lasted there a long time. The question then arises, why does Joshua do all of this right before his death? What's he trying to accomplish here? Well, he knows that following his death, the Lord is not going to appoint a new national leader. If there were to be a new national leader, he would have been told because he would be the one to go appoint him. Moses knew Joshua was the guy from, a, from an early point and was building him up and preparing him for that opportunity and then appointed him in the day. Joshua's had no such indication from the Lord, so he understands where things are going. There's not going to be a new Joshua. There's going to be campaigns of war, but not on the scale he's led them. There's going to be enemies, but it's going to be regional. Tribal rule now is about to, to take hold. And so all that remains is for all these tribes to do what he says in the last verse. Go get your inheritance. Go settle the land. Possess it. Live in safety. And they are going to see that outcome provided they continue in the covenant that the Lord gave them. And of course, doing that in faith is nothing more than simply recognizing if God has brought us this far, what do we have to fear in going further? But they have to do these things without a strong anointed leader who will compel obedience and deal with rebellion the way Moses and Joshua have been doing. So the nation says, we're going to do it. Look at the last part of the book, verse 29. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnasserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gilbeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So the book of Joshua ends with three burials. Joshua first dies at 110, and his life testimony was that under his leadership, the people of Israel, largely speaking, served the Lord. That doesn't mean they lived perfectly. It doesn't mean they didn't sin. What it means is that the nation did not fall to serving other gods as long as Joshua was around. And they remained true worshipers of Yahweh. His leadership was largely responsible for that faithfulness, which is what you see here. Him and the elders with him who all knew of what God had done in Egypt. So just as his strength of leadership was a deterrent to rebellion, now the question remains, without him there, what will be that deterrent? Then verse 31 it says the people could remember the deeds of the Lord in bringing them out of Egypt. So memory is sort of a second advantage that Joshua had. He was leading a group of people who, at least among their elders, knew themselves what had happened before. But once the memories fade, the elders are gone, Joshua is gone, what will that mean for the nation of Israel? 
Secondly, then you see the high priest being buried, Eleazar. He ruled at the right hand of Joshua. He's one of those men who also knew of the things God had done and could teach from that perspective. But now he's gone. And then you have Joseph being buried. Now, Joseph obviously has been dead for a long time. They've been carrying his bones around for the whole 35 years. They've been moving around the nation after he is brought up out of Egypt. But now Joseph has been put back in the ground. It seems to be a completion of that of a cycle there, of an ending to a chapter in, in Israel's existence. Now you have that final patriarch who left the land, reinterned in the land, and the memory of him will fade as well, at least among some. You know, it's one thing when you're still carrying his bones around. It's another thing when he's finally in the ground and you're not thinking about him so much anymore. So all the, the tangible pieces that connected those in the land with how they got there, the Joshua's, the Eleazar's, the, the elders, and even the bones of Joseph, all that's gone. So as it ends with three burials, the nation enters this new period, as Judges explains, a period when men did what was right in their own eyes, and yet the Lord has not forsaken them. So then next week, when we begin Judges proper, chapter 1, we get to understand how he rules over his people during those 300 years of history with the aim of still expanding to complete the occupation of the land, while dealing with the rising sin of the people. And as we know already, the end of that story is one in in which we see confirmation that in the heart of men, there is no good. But by God's hand, there can be. And through leaders, he will occasionally bring success. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll enter into communion and corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, as always, for the study of your word, for a chance to begin anew in a new book. And in light of our teaching this morning, Father, I thank you for for leaders, for men and women who you call and anoint at times to bring a word, a prayer, a song, or perhaps godly wisdom and counsel, admonishment even. We thank you, Father, for the way leaders take uh, opportunity in our lives to bring us closer to you and to bring obedience out in our life. And forgive us, Father, for times in which we Do not avail ourselves of those opportunities which we turn aside from leaders that you've given us. And Father, I pray for our leaders. I pray that they would be strong in the Lord, that they would have wisdom and that they would be upright, not according to what is in their own eyes, but according to your word and by your spirit. I pray, Father, that uh, we would be useful in the lives of others as leaders at times. And as we return to the book in weeks to come, Father, I pray that you'd continue to show us how you can take the weak things of the world, show your strength through them, turn hearts to repentance, bring about revival at times, Father. Use even those who would oppose you to strengthen your purpose. We want to see those things, Father, because we know in our own life we face those same trials from time to time, and we want encouragement. We need that strength to know that you're ever-present, always in, in control, Father, always working for good in our lives. Let us have that confidence as we study. Thank you, Father, for the, the chance to do it in weeks to come. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.